I really love it here, but people don't seem to like witches in this town. Depends on the people. Now take me, for instance. I just met you, and I know I like you. So tell me, whereabouts are you two staying? Oh, I see. Why didn't you tell me you have no place to stay? We have a spare room in the attic. You can use that. You'd really let me stay with you? <laughs> Why, of course. But we haven't introduced ourselves. My name's Asono. And I'm Kiki, ma'am. And Gigi here is my very best friend. Hello, and welcome to the Treehouse Anime Club, where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. My name is David, and I am the creator and host of this program. And this week, we're kicking off the podcast by talking about the film, Kiki's Delivery Service, produced by Studio Ghibli and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. This is a film that is very special to me, and I've had a blast learning about how it was made. I don't have any listener comments for this episode, of course, because this is episode one. We are brand spanking new. And instead, I want to give a self-introduction and a general overview of the podcast and its concept. First things first, the Treehouse Anime Club is not exactly an anime review podcast. There is a general review at the end, but we're not in the business of ranking anime or putting them on a chart. This is more of a podcast about how a particular project was made. I enjoy doing research, I enjoy looking up information, and I've been an anime fan for a number of years, but for quite a while my general knowledge has started and mostly ended with the studio and maybe the director and a couple of folks like the writer. I am also brand new to podcasting in general. This is my first podcast, this is my first time working in a podcast or doing audio editing, but I'm not letting that slow me down. I believe in on-the-job training, work it out as I go. I've always thought that this would be a good skill to develop. I've had a lot of fun making this episode, and I've had a lot of fun writing for the other episodes, and I think this is a concept that I can run with for quite a while. But the main point I'm trying to get across, because I am rambling a little bit, is I wanted to create the Treehouse Anime Club to highlight the people who work in the anime industry and to highlight the people that work on my favorite shows and movies and etc. Because let's be honest, a lot of people invest a lot of time, a lot of money, and certainly just a lot of energy, just blood, sweat, and tears to bring us our entertainment. And I wanted to make this podcast to highlight these folks. And so the general idea of this podcast is to follow an anime production from start to finish, kind of like the show How It's Made, if you've ever seen that show on Discovery Channel or the Science Channel, and through covering all of the highs and lows or challenges and the various decisions that eventually lead to the final product. And all of these various small stories help inform the bigger picture. And so if this concept sounds interesting to you and you think you'd like to engage with us and keep track of this show, I would ask that you subscribe to us over on Spotify or Apple Podcasting or Google Podcasting, wherever you can find me. I should be there. Uh, there may be a little bit of holdouts on the this being episode one. There may be a couple of holdouts uh, waiting on that approval process. At the very least, you can find me over on Spotify for right now. I am on Instagram. This is the Treehouse Anime Pod on Instagram. This is going to be my main promotional arm for the show, my main point of contact for DMs and uh, episode announcements and various things. I have two kitty cats, so expect a lot of cat pictures over there on the Instagram. I also have an email address, 
If you want to send in your write-ins to treehouseanimepod at gmail.com, I will gladly take those as well. And so I will also be using the Instagram and the email to read out listener comments on the show. And one last thing, there is a Discord server in the works, but I want to get a couple of episodes into this project and take stock before I try to add anything else to my plate. I want to get used to producing the episodes and producing the show before I add managing a Discord server to my list of things to do. So a little bit about me for the self-introduction. I My day job, I am a full-time forester. I'm born and raised in the southern U.S. I also work here. You can probably tell that from my accent. I am happily married to my lovely wife. And of course, we have two kitty cats. I have Link the Maine Coon and Hecate the Tabby. And of course, being a forester, I've always loved being outside and interacting with nature. So I grew up as a child of the 90s. I was a Disney animation kid well before everything else. There was also all the shows hitting Nickelodeon. We had SpongeBob SquarePants, Fairly Odd Parents, Danny Phantom. You had Cartoon Network. My favorite show was like Courage the Cowardly Dog, Dexter's Laboratory. There were also the classic reruns of Looney Tunes, Scooby-Doo, Tom and Jerry. I love those cartoons. I've been a longtime fan of all of those on the Boomerang Network. But I also grew up relatively rural. Uh, there were a lot of woods around me, and I spent a lot of time outdoors. But the times that I did sit in front of the TV, this was during the last gasp of Saturday morning cartoon blocks. Primarily for the purposes of this podcast, I have a lot of nostalgia for the 4Kids slash Fox Block or whatever they kept changing their name to. We had the Pokemon show, we had Beyblades, Metabots, I uh, was also a fan of Shaman King, but my big series was actually Yu-Gi-Oh, of all things. I was not really a fan of Pokemon, but Yu-Gi-Oh was more my Saturday morning cartoon of choice. And I'm a still a card-carrying OG series fan. I've seen every single episode at least twice. I was also a big fan of the Power Rangers. I, was, I could usually catch an episode before going to elementary school. I didn't start with the original Mighty Morphin series. I was a bit too young to catch it in 95. But I did catch all the reruns and I caught the back half of that series, plus all the different shows that they did up until about 2005. I, of course, could tell you that Yu-Gi-Oh! and Pokemon and those shows were somehow differently made than Dexter's Laboratory and SpongeBob SquarePants. But I didn't know about anime as a term until my teens, about junior high. And even then, I was watching shows like the Teen Titans, Justice League. But the big one was Avatar The Last Airbender in 2005. And it also helped that I was about the same age as Aang, the main character, when the show premiered. I watched Avatar The Last Airbender like semi-religiously during its runtime. And even today, it's still one of my favorite series just of all time for animation. And I got into anime fandom properly, I guess, who, for those of us who are really care or who's, whoever's counting. But I got into anime fandom, quote, properly in about middle of high school when Avatar wrapped up its run. I had a group of friends who introduced me to a series called Full Metal Alchemist, and I ate that show up as well. After I finished Full Metal, I went back and watched a lot of the shows that premiered on Toonami, the later, the late night block of primarily anime cartoons. So I caught up on Gundam Wing, Yu Yu Hakusho, Tenchi Muyo, Cowboy Bebop, Outlaw Star, We're Gonna Be Here Forever. The long story short is I haven't looked back since then. I've been, I've been a fan ever since. And to jump forward a little bit further, I started collecting anime 
about halfway through college, and I've been a collector for about 10 years. If you're going to start collecting anime, don't do it when you are half broke anyways. It's not a good idea. It's not the best financial decisions that I've ever, I've ever made. But again, I don't have any regrets, and it was just not a good financial decision at the time. For my personal collection, it's gotten relatively large over the years, but I've tried to keep, I've slowed down recently. I more or less have gotten all of my primary favorites, and I place a lot of emphasis in my personal collection on rewatchabilities. I'm not just going to buy this show just to have it. I'm also not the biggest manga reader or collector. I'm not really a comic book person, but I do have my favorites. My, I'm trying to keep my manga collection artificially small because I already have a lot of novels and books. So the manga collection is already, it's fighting for shelf space on uh, areas that are already very crowded. If I do cover a manga series on this show, it will likely be in service to the anime adaptation. Usually if there's a major story divergence between the two. Of course, I'm not just an anime junkie. I have other hobbies. I love playing frisbee golf or disc golf. It gets me outdoors. I also enjoy taking a lot of walks. Going back to indoors, I, of course, play video games because I don't spend enough time indoors. Even with my day job as a forester, I spend quite a lot of time in front of the computer anyways due to this fantastic modern age that we all live in. So video games are more or less for me to relax. After a day of being in front of the computer, sometimes I don't really want to engage with more computer stuff. Which, of course, now I'm running a podcast, which means more computer stuff. Yay! I love to read. I have quite a lot of books. My personal belief is you can never have too many books, at least until we have spring cleaning or if we eventually have to move house and I'm going to be the one packing them all up. Maybe I'll change my stance then. But I love science fiction and fantasy. I'm a major Tolkien buff. Uh, more contemporary side, I enjoy Brent Weeks. He has his Night Angel trilogy and the Lightbringer novels. My favorite writer in general is Michael Crichton. I really love his style and I really wish he was still with us today. Some of my science fiction favorites are Isaac Asimov, Arthur C. Clarke, Jack Vance. And that's pretty much it for my general hobbies and how I got into animes. I want to transition over to the podcast itself. Let's talk about the schedule and the general overview because I don't want to keep you too long on this section. I want to get to Kiki's in a minute. So first off, the release schedule for the podcast. I am targeting two episodes per month. This is, of course, because of my day job that takes priority, but I think I can support two episodes a month. We'll see if I can maintain that. I don't mind having to go monthly, but I have a lot of anime that I want to cover, and so being having more opportunities to fit more episodes into the year is ideally what I would like to do. But again, I this is something I'm doing as a hobby first and to develop a skill. So I'm not going to force myself or do or or make myself burn out on this project. That is the last thing I want to do. And so moving on to the general episode structure, I know this is episode one. Things are likely going to change, but this is how I have the podcast planned out so far. So of course, we'll start the show with the welcoming and announcements, any sort of plugs I need to get out of out of the way as well. I'll move on to if there are any listener comments. And of course, what have I been watching since the last episode and getting into the main body, you know, that those are that's been the appetizers. So we're getting into the main course, the meat of the show, 
we'll start with why was the anime created? Is this adapting an existing work or is it an original? Are there any special decisions involved in why this was created? This will lead into the general plot synopsis and we'll then go from then we'll go from there into the actual production timeline of said anime property. And in talking about this property, I am going to highlight the top level staff, you know, your general directors and major creatives involved with the work. And anytime I talk about uh, any any of these people, I am listing at least one other anime project, at least one other, uh, the most notable thing I can find that they have been involved with. And if you want to look into these people more, you can consider this segment sort of a research primer into these folks. If you want to go and check them out more for yourself, if you want to check them out in more detail for yourself, that's sort of the idea behind listing the creatives like this. And this same approach applies to the major characters in the plot and the voice actors. They will also get some additional outside anime credits, so you can go check them out by yourself if you so wish. And that will lead into the general conclusion of the episode, the review roundup. This is more of my personal opinions on the project and the final product. I'm not going to assign any numbers or a review score. This is more for me just to talk about how I feel on a project. You'll pretty much know how I feel on a project, either through the production side or, and especially during the review roundup. And after the review roundup, I will include a nice little surprise at the end of every, of every episode, a nice little treat for listening all the way. Or, of course, you can be that person and skip ahead. So once again, this is the Treehouse Anime Club. I am very excited to get started. I hope you enjoy the show. And here we are. This is the story of Kiki's Delivery Service, or its original title Majo no Takiban, produced by Studio Ghibli and directed by the ubiquitous Hayao Miyazaki. The film is based on the best-selling 1985 children's novel written by Eiko Kadano. And the general plot follows Kiki, a 13-year-old apprentice witch. She is from a long line of witches on her mother's side. And as part of her training, she must live by herself in a different town for one year without the help of her parents or any other witches to prove that she can make a living with her abilities. She is accompanied by uh, her familiar, a black cat named Gigi, and she eventually ends up in this little town of Cortico, which is strangely not named in the film directly, but you can see it on, you can see the name of the town on a delivery truck. And so the plot follows Kiki as she starts a new life for herself in the city. And after some early obstacles and a few setbacks, Kiki decides to start a delivery service by flying parcels to people on her broom, almost like a mail order catalog before that was a thing. She gets involved in various misadventures around town. In the in the novel, these adventures are 
little episodic tales, kind of like diary entries, if you think of it like that. There are a couple of notable stories that I'll go over. The first one being she loses a stuffed cat toy and has to use Gigi as a substitute to buy time while she tracks down the actual toy. This also happens in the movie. There is a time where she poses for a portrait, then delivers the painting to the town square for an art exhibit. There's another story where she flies gears in various parts in order to fix the town's clock tower for New Year's Eve, and she also saves a child from drowning in the ocean during a trip to the beach. So the delivery service in the novel is basically the vehicle and also the narrative glue to pull together all the stories and to flesh out both Kiki and the town. And the novel basically follows her various adventures in the town throughout her year in Koriko, And then Kiki returns home to complete her training. But Kiki loves the town so much, she decides to live there for good once her training is completed. So in order to set the scene for the movie adaptation, I want to very briefly go over Hayao Miyazaki and the creation of Studio Ghibli. Hayao Miyazaki is arguably one of the most well-known anime movie directors in the world. He started his career as an animator way back in 1963 and worked on a lot of early classics of Japanese animation well before his more better-known career leading Studio Ghibli. A few of his more notable pre-Ghibli works include Horse, Prince of the Sun in 1968, Puss in Boots in 1969, and Animal Treasure Island in 1971. His first directed series was Future Boy Conan in 1978, and his directorial movie debut was the classic film Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro. That one was a real career maker. And so Studio Ghibli was founded in 1985 after the success of the film Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, and the studio was headed by directors Hayao Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, and producer... Toshio Suzuki. The name Ghibli was chosen by Miyazaki from an Italian noun from World War II to describe a hot desert wind. The idea was that Studio Ghibli would blow a new wind through the animation industry. And what makes Ghibli unique is that this studio was founded to produce theatrical films, not TV series. Now, the studio has dabbled in various projects over the years, but it is most well known for producing theatrical films. And in particular, the 2001 film Spirited Away put Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli on the worldwide stage properly by winning Best Animated Picture. The studio had, of course, had major successes before, but Spirited Away was the true worldwide mainstream recognition. Studio Ghibli has had several high-profile films and a reputation for quality. Their films are amongst the highest-grossing anime feature films in Japan. The studio mascot is the character Totoro from Miyazaki's 1988 film My Neighbor Totoro. And over the years, Miyazaki has had multiple retirements, the last big one being around 2013 after his film The Wind Rises was apparently supposed to cap off his career, but he's since come back, and he's currently working on his new magnum opus, How Do You Live? This is his new final film project launching later this year. And after his latest retirement in 2013, Studio Ghibli kind of closed its doors for a while and restructured in 2014 following their retirement, and a lot of the staff were picked up by other studios or founded their own. So today's Studio Ghibli is very different from the Studio Ghibli that made Kiki's Delivery Service. So speaking of, the rights for Studio Ghibli to adapt the Kiki's Delivery Service novel into film were acquired in 1987 
alongside two other companies co-producing. There was the Tokuma Shoten Publishing Company. They publish video games, movies, music, manga, books, the whole deal. The second company being Yamato Transport, which is a door-to-door delivery company. And at the time, Studio Ghibli was a subsidiary of the Tokuma Shoten Company until April 2005, when Tokuma executed a corporate spinoff with Studio Ghibli, and that caused the studio to go independent. And also, Yamato Transport in particular was very eager to sponsor the film. Its corporate logo is actually a yellow oval with a black cat carrying her kitten in its mouth. And the original plan was for Miyazaki or Takahata to direct this movie. However, at the time, both men were busy with My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies, respectively. This was the studio was tackling these two movies at the same time. And most of the, quote, A team was working on it. The studio was very busy. So instead, Miyazaki picked an up-and-comer, Sunao Katabuchi, to direct the film. And this was going to be Katabuchi's directorial debut, but Miyazaki oversaw the project as a producer. And so this movie was given as a training project of sorts for the younger staff at Ghibli while the rest of the folks were working on Totoro and Fireflies. So first, I want to talk about Sunao Katabuchi for a little bit. Even though his part in this story is a little brief, he gets his due later down the line. Katabuchi started working under Miyazaki while he was still in college, actually. Katabuchi submitted a couple of scripts for Sherlock Hound, a series that Miyazaki directed just a couple of episodes of, but nevertheless, you gotta start somewhere. Sherlock Hound is basically Sherlock Holmes, but everyone's a dog. Later down the line, Miyazaki tried to bring in Katabuchi as a scriptwriter for the film Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, but that didn't quite work out. So now Katabuchi has also worked under Isao Takahata. So the main thing I'm wanting to establish here was Katabuchi had done a lot of background work and support work and script writing for both Miyazaki and Takahata in the past, so Kiki's delivery service was these men giving Katabuchi his chance at the director's seat. So we're going to fast forward a little bit to where Totoro and Fireflies have both wrapped up production, they are releasing in the theaters, and a lot of the staff on Totoro transitioned over to Kiki's. And Miyazaki assesses progress on the film, and by all accounts, this project was in trouble. A lot of articles that I read just say that the young staff was intimidated by the scope of the project that they'd been given, and that progress was just kind of, they were kind of treading water. And in the DVD interviews on Kiki's Delivery Service, Miyazaki himself states that the project was frankly falling apart, and then he had to step in if the movie was going to be saved. So it's 1988, Miyazaki takes over as director for Kiki's Delivery Service, and Katabuchi is demoted to the assistant director. But again, he gets his due later down the line. And one of the first things Miyazaki does, he threw out the first screenplay and wrote a brand new one, practically from scratch. So on the official film credits for Kiki's Delivery Service, we have Miyazaki listed as a producer, the main director, and the screenplay credits. He did a lot for this film. And so in setting up for his new vision for the film, Miyazaki sent the senior staff location scouting in Europe, mainly Sweden. If you want the primary model for the town of Koriko, look no further than Visby, Sweden. And in general, Miyazaki took a lot of creative licenses with his interpretation of the setting of the book. Most notably, it's the time period of the film is very vague. Again, in the same DVD interview, Miyazaki says that his interpretation of Kiki's setting was 
a conflict-free Europe. And this city just screams Europe. There's a lot of Swedish influence is obviously the primary one, but there's Italian, French, Spanish, British, and on top of that, it's mixed in with vaguely 1950s Americana. There's a lot of mixing technologies as well. We have Zeppelins and biplanes next to vintage American autos from the 50s and even the 60s. We have modern gas stoves next to wood-burning stoves. We have black and white televisions slash radio sets that can receive live broadcasts. So something like cable is also apparently a thing. It feels very anachronistic, quite frankly, but it works. It's this weird mixing bowl of ideas that is executed upon just very well. And Miyazaki, again, just chuckles in this interview of like, oh, yes, I fooled the Japanese audience rather brilliantly. They didn't know where any of this was coming from. I just threw in whatever I thought would be cool for European influence. So he fancies himself a little bit of a jokester. The character design for the film is credited to Katsuya Kondo, and he's also one of the three animation directors on Kiki's. He tackled character designs while simultaneously working on My Neighbor Totoro as a key animator. And he has been a character designer on multiple Ghibli projects, the film Ocean Waves in 1993, the, the TV series Ronja the Robber's Daughter in 2014, Earwig and the Witch in 2020, but that's the most recent one to name, to name a few projects. And when you talk about the Ghibli look for their character designs, Katsuya Kondo is the man who is credited with playing a big part in creating that style. And the Ghibli look is generally like, I find that the faces are very soft, they're rounded and very gentle, very approachable. Ghibli characters have a factor of squash and stretch to their faces and emotion, but it never ventures into full-on cartoonish. There's a little bit of blurring the line between realism and full-on cartoon. Their eyes especially, the Ghibli eyes are bright and soulful and deep. They kind of look like Pixar eyes in 2D. And when a Ghibli character cries, they do like these great giant teardrops. It's like a river almost. And this character design allows for a wide range of expressions. And again, that squash and stretch to them. But again, it never looks cartoonish. It just works. It's a very soft and approachable character design philosophy. And it's one of the factors that defines a Studio Ghibli project. The art director on the film is credited to Hiroshi Ono. This guy's been in the industry for a long time. He is a longtime art director and a prolific background artist. He's also a founder and the current re representative of Studio Fuga, which is a background in art design support studio. Some of the other works that he's been involved in, the studio that did backgrounds for Acura. There's another movie, Jinro, The Wolf Brigade. And if we're talking more recent projects, he's done episodes of Jujutsu Kaisen, Spy Family, and Firehunter. So Hiroshi Ono was brought on to Kiki's delivery service as the art director by request of another man named Kazuo Oga, who at the time was on the Totoro team as the art director. But for this film, he was in charge of backgrounds. And for our purposes, Kazuo Oga has been on the backgrounds team for pretty much all Ghibli movies up until the 2014 film when Marnie was there. And from then, he's been involved with The Boy and the Beast by Mamoru Hosoda at Studio Chizu in this corner of the world, directed by Sunao Katabuchi. There you go, over at Studio Mappa. He's also done backgrounds for Mary and the Witch's Flower by Studio Ponok. Studio Ponok was founded in 2015 by a lot of former Ghibli staff, so Mary and the Witch's Flower was their debut film. And a more recent favorite of mine, he was also 
on the backgrounds team for the film Oko's Inn, directed by Kusaka Kitaro in 2018 at Studio Madhouse. Oko's Inn was a film that was also produced with a lot of former Studio Ghibli staff who transitioned to Madhouse. And as far as the backgrounds for Kiki's Delivery Service to get back on track, the main word that comes to mind when I think of the setting for Kiki's is painterly, not so much watercolor, but almost like a portrait, almost like a landscape portrait. The, her home in the country is just absolutely gorgeous. There are plants, flowers, just lush, vibrant green bursting from the seams of her home and the surrounding countryside. The town of Corico is very busy. The crowd shots and the traffic are all hand-drawn, very distinct. There's not a single repeated person in these crowds. And this is before the advent of computers being used to take care of a lot of this grunt work. So every person you see in these crowd shots, every automobile you see, this is hand animated. It's just absolutely nuts. There are, of course, this being a delivery service via broomstick, there are a lot of shots of the town viewed from above. And even though Cortico is represented to be this relatively modern, bustling, vibrant city, it is also a very green town. It's a town that is on the up and up, but you can see the new and the old buildings are very stately. And again, the mixing, the mixed settings and the mixing of European influences makes for a very unique setting. There's a ton of detail in the backgrounds, and it's one of the main reasons I keep coming back to this film. I find something new every time I watch this film. In terms of soundtrack, Joe Hisaishi is the musical composer for Kiki's, and he's the musical composer for practically every film Miyazaki has directed, and he mentions on the extras that Prague was a was the primary influence in his musical direction. The soundtrack isn't particularly complicated. It's more focusing on bright violins and piano, a couple of woodwinds. The main motif, I would say, of the soundtrack is a town with an ocean view. I played a little bit of that track leading into this part of the podcast. Pieces from this song appear throughout the general score. And all that being said, Miyazaki's script is very different from the Kiki portrayed in the original novel. For one, with the new storyboard that he has penned, the project has ballooned from a 60-minute TV special to its 105-minute theatrical runtime that we know today. And again, while the book is very episodic and mostly conflict-free, Miyazaki felt that the story needed a little bit of, you know, quote, punching up to make the project more appealing as a film. He also made some changes to Kiki's appearance. In the novel, she has long hair with a small black bow, while in the movie, Kiki has short hair in a bright red bow. It's a, It makes a rather big difference if you were to look at the cover for the original novel and to see Kiki in the movie. She looks very different. Miyazaki's Kiki is also more headstrong than she is in the novel. He puts more focus on her feeling out of place and struggling to fit in and finding her place within the town, the very fish-out-of-water aspect, as it were. But the biggest difference between the film and the movie happens around the midpoint of the story when Kiki essentially loses heart and almost gives up on her dream of completing her training or her dream of self-reliance or her dreams of success. 
which is, of course, wildly different from the book. This does, this never happens in the book. And Eiko Kadono, the author, is rather upset with these changes once she gets wind of them. She, in fact, threatened to close down the production during this time. And, of course, this is a rather serious problem. This is a quite the creative rift that Miyazaki has put between his adaptation and the author. And, of course, we today have the benefit of hindsight, but I can imagine Kadono-san being rather worried at the time that her book wasn't being adapted faithfully at all. I've seen my fair share, and I'm sure you have as well, of popular children's novels or young adult novels that get adapted into bad films that don't represent the property at all. My biggest one was Aragon back in the day. That movie is awful. There's also Percy Jackson series, Rings of Power. But as it goes... Miyazaki and Toshio Suzuki, the producer, the assistant producer of Studio Ghibli, brought her in for a studio tour, and this was enough to calm her down and not cancel the project. Hooray! So I'm going to jump into the main players active in the story, aside from Kiki, and I'm going to start with the bakery owners, Asono and her husband, Fukuo. Asono is essentially Kiki's adopted mom for the movie. She is the first person in town to reach out to Kiki, and she immediately sees the young witch's potential. Asono also gives Kiki a place to stay in exchange for helping out at the bakery, as Asono is expecting a baby soon. Fukuo doesn't really do anything in the film. In fact, his name isn't even mentioned. I didn't know what his name was until I was looking at the DVD credits. He's mostly a silent role. He's kind of the stoic dad guy with a big teddy bear heart of gold, but he doesn't really do anything in the film. Asono is the main player between the couple. And it's actually Asono who comes up with the idea of the delivery service in the movie, and she also helps spread the word around town to help Kiki get started. The next person I want to talk about is Tumbal. He is a young boy who hangs out with a gang of kids in town, and he is fascinated with flight. So over the course of the film, he becomes like the enthusiastic little brother slash best friend for Kiki, someone her own age who can be her in for the rest of the kids. And Tombo spends the movie mostly off screen building a bicycle powered flying machine that we see take off and active at the end of the film. There's also a section in the middle of the film where he and Kiki take the propeller bike essentially out for a test drive. Tombo's name also means dragonfly, which a funny detail for the end of the film to jump ahead a little bit. His little flying machine Kind of looks like a giant dragonfly. Another important side character is Ursula the Artist. She mostly keeps to herself in living in a cabin in the woods to produce her art away from the noise and bustle of the city. And she's a bit of a tomboy, a bit of a rebel, dresses more like the men. She never wears a dress or anything like that. She is more or less Kiki's adopted big sister for the film. And she's rather this... She's a rather straight shooter. Out of all of the people in the movie, Ursula, I feel, kind of gets Kiki's situation the best. And the last character I want to talk about is the madam. She's not terribly involved in the film, but is involved enough to represent Kiki's adoptive grandmother and something of an anchor to Kiki's familiar countryside home. Because everything about the city is new and loud and bustling to Kiki, but Madam lives in an older part of town and she's a very calm, stable 
but she's still a young lady at heart. She appreciates the wonder of in the world, despite all the changes that she's witnessed over the years. She still has a fascination with the world. And of course, she just gets absolutely giddy every time she sees Kiki flying on a broomstick. And so for the original Japanese dub for the movie, we have opening and ending credits performed by Yumi Arai. Message of Rouge and Message of Kindness. Kiki and Ursula are voiced by Minami Takayama. She is a voice actress and a singer. Most notably for my credits, she is the voice of the main character, Conan, in the series Detective Conan, or you may recognize it as Case Closed over here in America. Gigi is voiced by a lady named Rei Sakuma. She is also another voice actress and musician. And she is the voice of a character named Butterco in Anpan Man. She's had that role for over 20 years, starting in 1988. And a quick note about Gigi's voice actress. Cats are traditionally voiced by women in Japan, so that's just a thing that they do over there. But it's also not so different from how women are usually cast as young boys anyways in a lot of productions. And that holds true even over here. Morgana from Persona 5, for example, is voiced by a lady. And a quick note about Anpan Man, because it's a series that I'm not terribly familiar with, but I know of it. Anpan Man is a long-running children's series from the 80s, and it's still growing strong today. And the basic summary of Anpan Man is, One night, the star of life falls down the chimney of a bakery nestled deep in the forest, causing the dough in the oven to come to life. This dough becomes Anpan Man, a superhero made of Anpan, which is a sweet roll with a jean band, which is a sweet roll with a bean jam filling, like a red bean paste. Asono is voiced by Keiko Toda. She is also a singer. Keiko Toda has been active since the 80s, as far back as the original Gundam. And she's also been the voice of Anpan Man from 1988 to 2019, so the main character of the Anpan Man series. And she's still active today. She voices Ataru's mom, the main character Ataru. She voices his mom in the currently airing Irisei Yatsura reboot that started up last year. Tombo is voiced by Kape Yamaguchi. And going back to Detective Conan for a moment, there is a companion series of sorts to Detective Conan called Magic Kaito. And so Kape Yamaguchi voices the Kaito kid. Think of him as the Arsene Lupin to Conan being Sherlock Holmes. Sort of that deal. In a more recent project he's been involved in is he is the voice of Usopp in the One Piece film Red. And lastly... We have Madame being voiced by Haruko Kato. She's mainly a TV actress, but she also voices another Madame. Haruko Kato voices Madame Solomon in the 2004 film Howl's Moving Castle, also directed by Miyazaki. So Kiki's Delivery Service premiered on July 29th, 1989, and quickly became Japan's highest grossing film of that year. The worldwide releases followed soon after and were a major success. And even today, the home video sales generate a lot of revenue. In fact, shortly after the Japanese premiere, the English dub of Kiki, the first English dub of Kiki's Delivery Service was produced by Carl Masek of Streamline Pictures in the later half of 1989. The movie was dubbed roughly alongside My Neighbor Totoro, Twilight of the Cockroaches, Lapita Castle in the Sky, and Acura. And this dub was done at the request of Tokuma Shoten for the purposes of being aired on Japan international flights. And then the only official release of this Streamline Pictures dub is on Ghibli Laserdisc box sets. So Kiki is voiced by the late Lisa Michelson. 
Mickelson? Michelson? I think it's Michelson, who also voiced Satsuki, one of the sisters in My Neighbor Totoro. Gigi is voiced by Kerrigan Mahan. And for the Streamline Pictures dub, I found a lot of folks who were involved in the original Dragon Ball Harmony Gold dub. So for the purposes of this, Kerrigan Mahan was the voice of Yamcha in the Harmony Gold dub of Dragon Ball. Ursula is voiced by Edie Miriman, and she also voiced Fujiko Mine in Lupin the Third, uh, Parts 2, all of that series, and she was involved in the dub for Castle of Cagliostro. She's also known as Tilemon for the 1999 Digimon Adventures series. Tombo is voiced by Eddie Frierson. He was also the voice of Tension in the Harmony Gold Dragon Ball dub. And finally, we have Melanie McQueen as the voice of Madam. She's had various supporting roles over the years. She was the voice actress for Sister Clara in an episode of Cowboy Bebop, and she also played one of the mothers in my Neighbor Totoro. And so fast forward a couple of years in 1997 with the Walt Disney Productions dub. So Kiki's Delivery Service was actually the first movie released under a 15-year partnership between Walt Disney and Studio Ghibli. This partnership lasted from 1996 to 2011. So Kiki's Delivery Service was similar to the Streamline dub, Walt Disney was dubbing Kiki's Delivery Service next to Totoro, Princess Mononoke, etc. But the Disney dub added extra dial- a lot of extra dialogue. They added a lot of insert music for the soundtrack. They also overlaid a lot of extra sound effects over sections of the film that were originally silent in the original Japanese dub. Now, these changes were approved by Studio Ghibli. There were no cuts to the film. However, the kanji on road signs and etc. were being replaced with English text, as was the style at the time. The additional musical inserts were composed by Paul Chihara, and really there's not much to say about the musical inserts other than they were mostly like soft piano works, but then just out of nowhere there's a rendition of In the Hall of the Mountain King. The original opening and ending songs were replaced by Two new songs, these were written and performed for the English movie by Sidney Foray. The opening credit song was replaced by this title, Soaring, and the ending credit song was replaced with I'm Gonna Fly. So Kiki's Delivery Service premiered at the Seattle Film Festival in the Egyptian Theater on May 23rd, 1998, with a release to home video shortly afterwards in September 1998. It did the film circuit and went straight to home video. The movie also had multiple premieres on the Disney Channel from 2000 through around 2002. Tuesday, join Disney for a spell with that fun-loving witch, Kiki. It's the bewitching adventure, Kiki's Delivery Service. Disney's going to brew up a high-flying magical show starring Kiki. My name's Kiki, and I'm a witch, a little witch who delivers some serious powers, along with her freaky feline friend, Gigi. Buckle up and hold on tight for Kiki's Delivery Service, Tuesday at 7, 6 Central, followed by And You Thought Your Parents Were Weird, only on Disney. So the voices in the 1997 Walt Disney dub. We have Kiki, voiced by a young Kirsten Dunst. She would have been around 15 years old at the time. Gigi is voiced by the late Phil Hartman. This was his last official voice actor role. And his passing actually came five days before the Seattle premiere. And the Walt Disney dub, the current English dub, is dedicated to him. Ursula is voiced by Janine Garofalo. Tombo is voiced by Matthew Lawrence, the kid from Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. 
the kid from Mrs. Doubtfire, and the recent finalist of Worst Cooks in America Celebrity Edition, That's So 90s. That was a fun credit to find on top of his general film credits. And Madame is voiced by Debbie Reynolds. And a quick note about Phil Hartman. He, in particular, inserted a lot of ad-libs for Gigi. His version of Gigi is very snarky versus the Japanese dub and even the streamlined dub of Gigi where he was given a little bit of snark in that one. Most of these ad-libs are just general filler. And so in 2010, with the end of the partnership looming in the distance, Disney took the opportunity to get one last set of DVD Blu-rays out into the wild. And as part of these redistributions, Disney took another look at the dub. A lot of lessons had been learned from the 90s dub when the industry was newer and there was less standardization. There are no new actors for any of the roles. This is more akin to a re-edit. And so the 2010 dub combines elements from the original 1997 Disney dub and the original Japanese dub. Most notably, a lot of Phil Hartman's ad-libs were cut. Also of note, the original Japanese opening and ending credits were restored. And in 2010, the company G-Kids acquired the theatrical rights for the Studio Ghibli catalog and took charge of releasing the titles that came afterwards. And in summer 2017, they officially inked a deal on a new set of Blu-ray slash DVD releases beginning in October 17th with, you guessed it, Kiki's Delivery Service leading the pack. And so alongside Fathom Events, this started the Ghibli Fest which features limited runs of Ghibli films in major U.S. theaters, it's still ongoing. You can, in fact, go to their website and check out the nearest theater. It's a heck of an experience, I have to say. Kiki's Delivery Service, along with all the other films from Studio Ghibli, are available for streaming on HBO Max. They are part of the Ghibli catalog. And with the success of this film adaptation, despite the creative differences between herself and Studio Ghibli, Echo Kadano penned five direct sequels to her novel, the first one in 1993 and the latest one in 2009, where Kiki grows up from 13 years old to young adulthood. And by book number six, she is in her 30s, married, and with twin children. I'll leave it to you to guess who she ended up married. And in 2003, the first novel was officially translated to English, and you can still buy it today if you wanted to. Other adaptations of Kiki's Delivery Service include a manga adaptation. This was translated to English in 2006. There have been multiple musicals and stage plays since the mid-90s. There was also a limited run at the Southwark Playhouse in the UK from December 2016 to January 2017. This version of the stage play is based on the film. Also, the manga adaptation was mostly based on the film. And there was even a live-action movie produced in 2014. If you want, there are multiple trailers on YouTube. I've checked it out. It kind of looks interesting. And even Disney, back in 2005, had expressed interest in making a live-action Kiki's movie, but that basically vanished into smoke. There's no other details. They, They announced it, and then poof, radio silence. And so we arrive at last to the review roundup. And I want to start this segment by going through my personal journey with Kiki's Delivery Service. I've, of course, said at the outset that this is a very special movie to me. And my first encounter with the film was actually completely by chance. 
It's around 2001, I believe. I was about eight years old at the time. And I was randomly flipping through channels, finding something to watch. And I landed on the Disney Channel in time to see Kiki fighting her way through the thunderstorm. Gigi is talking to her and she finds shelter in a train car. And this movie immediately hooked me because of just how it looked. And plus, it was also on the Disney Channel. I had no idea what this movie was or what it was about, but it looked very interesting. And the next hour and a half just had me completely spellbound. I couldn't wait through all the commercials. And at the time, I reconciled this film in my head as maybe this movie is a long-lost Walt Disney property because this was also during the period where Disney was still releasing limited runs of their classic catalog and then, quote, locking them away in the Disney vault forever. And as a kid, Kiki's Delivery Service was attention-grabbing mostly because of how it looked, but also because I really enjoyed the flying segments. I found Gigi to be hilarious, and Kiki's struggles were rather gripping for what was a rather mundane film. Uh, For a movie about a witch, there's really no flashy magic or any sort of spell casting or even potion brewing. Aside from her broom and her flying powers, Kiki's just a regular girl. But this movie is one of the rare films that has aged up with me. I've gotten different lessons watching it now as an adult, and I pick up on a lot of the more subtle messaging of Miyazaki's story than I did when I was a kid. And, you know, as, as a kid, I was more focused on the flying segments and her wanting to make friends with all the kids in town. And as an adult, I identify much more with Kiki struggling with the finances, scheduling her work and, you know, being worn down by the grind and struggling to keep her passion afloat. And a lot of Kiki's conflict in the film mirrors some of my early doubts from when I was planning the Treehouse Anime Club and looking at what do I want this podcast to be and am I even good enough to start this podcast? You know, it's all here. The adjusting to unfamiliar territory, the all of my self-doubts on should I really start this? Am I good enough to make a podcast? Am I ever going to, how am I going to develop my style? You know, all of the things of looking at these long-running podcasters and how well they've mastered their craft and me doing this first episode and hitting re-record and deleting entire minutes or hours thinking to myself, this is not good enough. This is not good enough. And also my own worries about scheduling for this podcast and can I maintain the passion? Because of course, this is episode one. This is the earliest stage. And right now my schedule is relatively clear. And But what happens if I get very, very busy with work? Am I going to is it, will there be a point that maybe I get worn down by work so much that I lose creative passion for doing this podcast? You know, it's all there. But at the end of the day, I find hope because, no, this is something that I am very passionate about. This is not just a one-time thing. I have had a blast writing not just this episode, but multiple episodes. With every new recording session, I get better and better. My confidence gets better. My voice gets better. And so a lot of these conflicts and struggles that I've had at this early onset, I find a lot of parallels to Kiki's delivery service. And also when I am feeling down and in the dumps, Kiki's delivery service is the kind of movie that I 
even even if I put it in on the background, whenever that movie wraps up, I'm instantly in a better mood. And another thing that I really enjoy about this film is there's no villain. For a lot of Miyazaki's other films, particularly you have Princess Mononoke, Castle in the Sky has a villain, Spirited Away has some villains, Nausicaa, of course, has villains, Porco Rosso. There's no villain for Kiki's delivery service. Kiki herself is more like her own biggest, quote, enemy. Instead, Miyazaki focuses on what I find to be two primary themes, which are maturity and self-worth. Because throughout the film, Kiki is confronted with various moments that challenge her self-image and kind of chip away at her self-confidence. Of course, there's the feeling out of place in the big city. Even after she gets established, she, for a lot of the film, feels like she's still struggling to you know, find her place. There are a lot of casual comments by the kids in the movie on her quaint or traditional clothes by all the city girls who have rich parents. They're very flat. They, they wear very flashy dresses and nice shoes and jewelry. Kiki, of course, also wants to wear pretty things and hang out with the kids, but she's having to manage her own money. She's having she's self-employed, as it were. She doesn't have the money to buy the latest fashion items in town. And she's at least pragmatic enough to save her money and put those priorities first. But it's still it's still something that weighs down on her. She is a 13-year-old girl, after all. She wants to be pretty and hang out with all the girls and be popular with all the boys in town. And this also goes into her doubts about career choice and skill level. Her only skill is flying, and she places a lot of importance on her skill of flying. This is my one thing that I'm good at which is obviously not true, but that's one of the voices of doubt that Kiki repeats to herself throughout the film. And Kiki has a good heart, but her main character flaw is she has that fallacy of thinking she needs to have all the answers ready at the time or has to be capable enough to take care of absolutely everything by herself. She also, through the film, doesn't define her own success or doesn't properly define her own successes or I'm not as great as my mother was when she was my same age, or I'm not as good at, you know, I'm not as good, I'm not good enough, I still have a lot to work on. She's not recognizing the, honestly, major leaps that she's taken. She's gone from being a complete stranger in town with basically nothing but the clothes on her back to she has a place to stay, she is contributing to helping out at the bakery. She Her, her delivery service is a success, but she is too wrapped up in her own insecurities to really recognize it. And she honestly throws herself into the delivery service too hard and hits that classic point of burnout. And at the middle of the film, Kiki unexpectedly loses her powers. The exact reason why she loses her powers was a talking point at the time. This, and of course, this definitely didn't happen in the book, but... As far as narratively, I believe losing her powers serves two masters. The first one being we need to have a central drama for the film, and it's also a major character-building moment for her. So in losing her powers, number one, primarily, Kiki can no longer fly. And secondly, she loses the ability to talk to Gigi. And in the process of trying to brute force her powers, it's not like her powers vanished overnight. It's more of a slow but yet sharp decline 
And as she's losing her power, she tries to, you know, brute force it. She tries to push through that burnout. And in the process, she breaks her mother's broom that she rode into town on, which, you know, that's a, that's a very symbolic part of the film as well. And so losing her powers naturally means that this is the lowest point for Kiki in the film, but it's also the opportunity for the greatest change. And during this part of the film, there's a great conversation between Kiki and Ursula, where Ursula basically tells her, Kiki, this is no different than suffering from an artist's block or a writer's block. And if you brute force this, you're never going to get better. You need to learn to take time for yourself and things will naturally come back to you. But Kiki, of course, has been so obsessed with proving herself and making the delivery service a success that she's forgotten what's really important, you know, having fun and taking time for herself and connecting with people. She's a responsible working member of society, but that doesn't mean she has to live for her work. And yes, obviously, Kiki gets her powers back at the end of the film, but the real change is in her approach, her perspective. That's the real lesson here. She's learned those lessons, and she's a much more well-balanced person at the end of the movie. And even though she has her powers back, she does not regain the ability to, quote, talk to Gigi. Gigi never talks to her again, but this is also an important facet of Kiki's development. Miyazaki has gone on record saying Gigi represents the, quote, immature side of Kiki. Gigi has essentially done his job. He's earned his retirement. And in a way, he kind of goes his separate way from Kiki, but he's still around. He just, again, he's earned his retirement. So I really like the ending credit sequence showing Kiki's new life. She has found her inner balance. She's found the healthy work-life balance. And you can tell that she's been accepted by the town as a whole. She fits in with the kids in town. And he. you also have Tombo who builds the flying machine. It's that bike plane that looks like a giant dragonfly. And he can't quite keep the thing aloft. He's got a little pull rope at the top that Kiki flies next to him in her broom and she kind of resets his elevation. And Gigi also has a little family and you can see him holding a, a little string with all of his kittens on a line while they take rides on Kiki's broom. And again, I, I just love this movie. Kiki's Delivery Service is an excellent coming of age film and every time I watch it, I just feel good. It's so all in all, I really couldn't have asked for a better start to this podcast. So before I leave you, I would like to issue a couple of special thanks, primarily for my parents and especially my wife for putting up with me and just letting me be a big old goofy kid. My wife, God bless her. She's the best thing that's ever happened to me. I would also like to thank members of the Remember the Game Discord. This is a retro gaming podcast who's hosted by Adam Blank, he is a comedian and retro game reviewer and an all-around great guy. He's kept me honest. He, I know despite his busy schedule, I did I bounced a lot of ideas off of him, and I really appreciate his patience, and especially the guys over at the Remember the Game Discord. There were a couple of you guys out there. I don't want to list spe- specific names, but you, you know who you are, and I really am thankful for your support and for keeping me honest. There is another podcaster who I owe a lot of thanks to. His name is Unbuckled Cape, and he is the host of Unbuckled Comics. This is a comics review podcast. He started a couple months before me, and just to see his growth and development has been very inspiring. I've also 
dropped a lot of ideas with him. There was a lot of brainstorming. And again, another person who just kept me honest. I couldn't have done this without all of you. And I'm eternally grateful that you got for your patience and your support and your guidance. And one last little surprise. I have been saving this for the end. I hope you enjoy this special segment. I am, this is the teaser audio of sorts for episode two. And if you can guess what this show is, hop over to the Instagram. I will have this soundbite uploaded there as a post and tell me what you think this show is. The topic for episode two will be officially revealed on Saturday, May 6th, 2023. So this is your official sneak peek and I really hope you enjoy it. This has been the Treehouse Anime Club. My name is David, and I really hope you enjoyed my show. Thank you so much for listening.